The following audio is from Summit Church. For more information on Summit Church, visit www.summitonline.tv. Hey, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you had a great Mother's Day last week. We took a break from the Gospel of Luke, but we are diving back in today. If you haven't been with us, uh, what's happened over the last few weeks as we've studied through the Gospel of Luke is we've seen a concerted effort by the religious leaders to try to trap Jesus in the form of well-worded questions. They ask questions that they know if Jesus answers them incorrectly, they will have him. The crowd listening and loving every word that he says will have to admit, ooh, I, I don't like that answer. And today, what we see in Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 44, is we see Jesus lay his own trap in the form of a perfectly worded question. And unlike the religious leaders, let me just spoil it, Jesus' question works. So much so that we won't even get an answer from them. They won't be able to answer. He words this question so well. But the context, just so we're all up to speed, uh, the first question that came at Jesus was from a group called the Herodians, and they just ask about paying taxes to Caesar. Should we do it or not? And Jesus masterfully answers, give to Caesar was a Caesar's, give to God what is God's. And then we had a second group, the Sadducees, come and ask about the afterlife. What happens after the resurrection? Well, they didn't even believe about a resurrection. They thought a resurrection was foolishness. But Jesus uses the Old Testament to simply prove the point of the resurrection and talking specifically about marriage in and after the resurrection. Now, there was a third question asked of Jesus that Luke does not record. And that came directly from the Pharisees, the one who were orchestrating this day of questioning, if you will. The Pharisees came up and asked, hey, which one of all the commandments is the greatest? And Jesus answers it beautifully. And you wonder why Luke didn't put that in here, because that's a pretty good question and a great answer. It's because Luke had already covered that in chapter 10. When another person, a teacher of the law, came up and asked Jesus, Luke covered that, so he, I don't think he felt it necessary to refer to that again. That's why it's missing here. And so now Jesus asks his question. And in his own answering, okay, in his own answering or his own wording of the question, he is going to get closer than ever to revealing his true identity as the Son of God. But we're not there yet. First, let's put out what the question is. Luke chapter 20, verse 41. Then Jesus said to them, so it's now it's his turn to talk, his turn to ask a question. Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? Why is it said that the promised one, the anointed one, is the son of David, King David from the Old Testament? Matthew records this as well. He words the question a little differently, but much more direct. He says, what do you think about the Christ? So Jesus is asking them, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Christ, Messiah, they are different words. They are different words, but they are both titles for the promised one. The one who was going to come and redeem and restore and renew and bring about all that God's people were waiting for. So Messiah, Christ, same thing. Matthew just records it a little bit differently. It was a very, very, very common belief that the Messiah would come from the line of David, would be the son of David. 
The Old Testament actually has much to say about this. Just two passages real quick that speak of this. Isaiah 11 verse 1 says, A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, so we still have the family line there. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch, capital B, okay, a branch, that's reference to the Messiah, will bear fruit. So we have a prophecy there in Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus. In Jeremiah 23, verse 5, it says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord. God says this, When I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. So you have two Old Testament passages there that pretty clearly state that the Messiah will come from the line of David. The religious leaders, while they don't answer Jesus' question out loud, and the reason I think they don't answer is because they're pretty certain they know the answer. And Jesus continues talking. So they're just waiting for the pause so they can answer, well, we believe this, Jesus, master teacher. We believe this because the Old Testament says it. The Bible says it. That's why we have the audacity to think that the Messiah or the Christ is the son of David. It's talked about it at least four times, and there's many more allusions to it in the Old Testament. So, I mean, they're going, if you're going to try to stump us, if you're going to give us a barn burner, then give us something better than this. But the reason we believe it is because the Bible says it. But Jesus will use David's own words. He will use David's own words to rock their worldview, to rock what they've always known to be true. He will point out one very obvious problem with their belief that the Messiah is the son of David by using one of their favorite passages. The most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament, the favorite passage of most of these religious leaders, Jesus will use it to prove that the Messiah, the Son of God, that he is not the son of David. He'll use David's own words to prove this, because here's what David said. Luke chapter 20, verses 42 to 44. David himself declares in the book of Psalms. So David's words recorded in the book of Psalms. The Lord said to my Lord, the Lord God said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And then Jesus points out, David calls him Lord. David calls the Messiah Lord. How then can he be his son? If David understands that the Messiah is his Lord, how can David possibly think that the Messiah is his son? He uses David's own words to rock, rock the worldview and the belief of these religious leaders. Jesus is referring to Psalm 110 verse 1. Where David said, the Lord God said to my Lord, the Messiah, sit at my right hand. David is making this personal, said to my Lord, the Messiah. David literally, okay, if you look at the Hebrew, he said this, Jehovah God said to my master Lord. So God said to my master, he's referring to the Messiah as his master, his Lord. In Hebrew culture, okay, 
This was universally known and accepted. In Hebrew culture, the son could never be greater than the father. The father was always greater than the son. So no father, David, would ever say that his son, the Messiah, was his master and Lord, unless it were true. That would never be spoken, that would never be thought of, and everyone listening, the crowd and especially the religious leaders on this day, would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. And they went, oh wow. Jesus points out the very obvious problem. They believe the Messiah is a descendant of David. David seems to know better. He seems to know that the Messiah will be the Son of God. Now, now, I just made a statement there that I know is presumptuous. Because nowhere in the Old Testament does David say that the Messiah will be the Son of God. He says, the Messiah will be my Lord, will be my master, but he doesn't say he will be the Son of God. But yet, yet, it appears in Psalm 110, verse 1, that David does have some suspicions. Just a little bit of thought that maybe, just maybe, this Messiah would be the son of someone really great, maybe even the son of God. Jesus is speaking to men who had accused him multiple times of blasphemy, who had tried to trap him over the last few hours, who had opposed his work, and he quotes a passage that says, the Lord or the Messiah's enemies will become his footstool. I don't think this is by accident that Jesus is talking to his enemies, those who oppose him, those who war against him. And he says, oh, by the way, in the end, the Messiah wins. The Christ wins. In the end, I win. You will be made my footstools. That's what Jesus is saying. The religious leaders aren't going to glean that, but that is what Jesus is saying is, in the end, I win. David himself said it hundreds of years ago. The enemies of the Messiah will become his footstool. It's actually Mark who adds just at the end, and this is not necessarily irrelevant, but it doesn't pertain to what Jesus is speaking, but Mark adds that the crowds loved it. They loved what Jesus had just done because they know they're standing in the presence of a stud. They know that. They've watched him maneuver and dodge the traps that the religious elite, the, the people who taught them, they, they'd watched Jesus just win each battle. One, two, three. He got it. They'd seen it. They know they're in the presence of a stud, but there's some. There's some in the crowd who are starting to murmur. Do you think he's the Messiah? Is there any way he's the promised one? Is there any way that this guy right here that we like is there any way that he's the master and Lord of David that David was talking about? I, I think it could be. Peter, one, I mean, one of Jesus' disciples, Peter had declared it almost a year and a half ago when Jesus asked, who do people say that I am? They responded, and he goes, well, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, bingo, you got it. So in that Further year and a half, obviously that rumor had probably spread throughout Palestine that, hey, there's people who follow this guy who think he's the Christ, who think he's the Messiah, who think he's the Son of God. And don't forget, don't forget, church, 
that just two days ago on Sunday, now not our Sunday, but on Sunday, we're just on Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life, but just two days ago, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey while tens of thousands of people hailed him as Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that had just happened. That's still very fresh on everyone's mind, that this guy's really, really special, and he might just be the Messiah, because what he did coming into Jerusalem definitely fulfilled huge messianic prophecies. But his enemies, these religious leaders, they can't possibly allow themselves to see this. And it's for one reason. There's one reason why they can't possibly see this man as the Messiah. And it is their spiritual pride. Their spiritual pride is what hinders them from seeing what a lot of people are beginning to at least think could be true. And some have already accepted as truth. They can't because their spiritual pride will stand in the way. Their pride is causing them to miss God. The son of God who's standing right in front of them. And church, what a sad sight. What a sad occurrence that God is right there. And it's their devotion to God and the belief that the Messiah would be from or be the son of David. It causes them actually, we'll see in a few days, to kill the son of God, the one they serve, the one they've devoted their life to, hypothetically, or at least spiritually they have. This sounds outrageous, but think about it. Jesus has trapped them with his own question. And there's no recorded answer. Why is that? Because they couldn't answer. He'd proven something that they had believed to be true for their entire life. He'd proven it wrong. People are starting to think maybe he is this Messiah. And they just fall silent. Because their spiritual pride won't allow them to answer You know they're thinking, oh, snap, we've been off the whole time, but we can't admit it now. We're already close to losing everything. I mean, just yesterday he came in and cleansed our temple, messed up our whole economic system. People are really starting to think we're losing control of this thing. So we can't admit now that we didn't know the Bible. We can't admit now that we we were off. No humility, no ability to repent, no ability to change the spiritual pride. It just enveloped them, and it doesn't help that the crowd, who are all watching this, they go smirks on their face. They love Jesus. They love him. They love what's happening right now. In church, as much as they love Jesus, I want you to know, I love Jesus. I love Jesus. I love what the Christian faith is based on. And now they don't see this yet, but they'll see it here in a few days. The Christian faith is based on the death of Jesus on a cross, the resurrection and eternal life through faith in our Savior, Jesus. I love what Christianity is based on, the simplicity of that, the resurrecting power of God, the saving grace of Jesus. I love that. I went to Bible college for four years to study ministry. All right, so I'm setting all this up to say this. I love everything about Jesus. I love everything about our faith. I I love ministry, yet I wonder how often my spiritual pride, specifically thinking that I'm good enough, causes me to miss the things of God that are right in front of me. How often do I look like one of the Pharisees? Because I think I'm good, because I think I've got it, because I think I know, because I think I'm right. 
And God is standing right in front of me going, but maybe you're not. Maybe you're not. Maybe there's a little bit more. Maybe there's something better. Maybe your pride is getting in the way of what I really want to do with you and for you. I wonder, church, how often am I like the Pharisees? Saying they love God, saying they devoted their whole life to God, yet missing God when he's standing right in front of them. When I first started going to church, when I first started to find faith and hear about Jesus, I I really feel like I was taught some things that made me more like a Pharisee than Jesus. And some really legalistic stuff, I think, was imparted on me and stuff that just isn't true. And it took me a long time to kind of unlearn some of the first fundamentals of following Jesus. I had to unlearn them. Now, these things were rarely said or taught, but they were more modeled. And I think that's almost worse. When you say one thing and model another, kind of like the Pharisees. And and I feel like I was led by example to to become quite Pharisaical. I I really do. For, For instance, church attendance. That was emphasized. You need to be at church. Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Those who really love God will be at church. But what was not modeled was love for our neighbor. And in fact, it was, it was really ugly. It was, hey, someone just walked in and they don't really look the part. So we're not really going to embrace them until they kind of go get their act together. That's so-and-so, and you need to steer clear of them because they're not good people. That was modeled for me. That's not Jesus. The more you're here, the more you're at church, that's what I was taught, the more you're at church, the more God loves you. But you have to be good while you're here. You have to look the part. That's what I was taught without ever being taught that. I was taught morality without the gospel. The gospel says it's Jesus who declares us righteous. We live for him. We obey him, not because it gets us or earns us any favor with God, but we obey him in his commands because of his love for us, because of his generous showing of grace towards us. That's what the gospel says. But I was just taught morality is very important. I really believed that by not having premarital sex and not drinking, I was loving God and walking with him. I really, I really did believe that. These are my teen years, these formative years where my relationship with God could have flourished, but I was just being taught, as long as you're not having sex, as long as you're not drinking, you're good to go. You're doing everything that God wants you to do. I was taught that form and function in prayer was more important than power. You better pray and make it sound good. Throw in a few of these words. Make sure you end it in this way. But we miss the Holy Spirit. My prayer life was so impotent in those moments because I wasn't praying in power. I was praying because I was told to pray. I wasn't praying, believing that I was going to see God move. I was just praying because I was told I needed to pray. There was no relationship. There was no intimacy. I'm not just throwing this in here to say the word, but I tithed. 
I tithed because I was told that's what you're supposed to do. But there was no generosity in my heart. There was no desire to give back to God. I did my 10% because I was told to give my 10%. Those were my formative years. And that's what I was shown. That's what was modeled for me. And therefore, I had a very legalistic, very religious, very, very lame relationship with God. And it wasn't until my eyes were opened by the gospel, it wasn't until I really met Jesus that I began to see the truth. That religion has always been about man making their way back to God through what they do. But Jesus shows us that God came to man to rescue us from our sin. God came to us. We don't have to claw our way to him. Jesus came to break every bond of slavery to sin. That's what he came to do. When we choose behavior modification and religious acts, we'll never break those chains. We will always be a slave to sin. We'll be a slave to sin and look real good to others. We'll look real good on the outside while sin is destroying us from the inside because we have not allowed our Savior to come in and begin to transform us from the inside out. Church, I want Jesus in my life. I know I am not perfect. I know I am broken. But I also know because of Jesus, it's not okay to stay that way. I want him, but the Pharisees didn't. Their rules made them look like gods in their community. Their control of people through their superior knowledge and wisdom made people feel horrible for not living like them. But this wasn't Jesus. That's not what Jesus was teaching. That's not what Jesus came to do. So the crowd loved him. Mark 12, 37. This is what Mark records. I've already referenced it, but this is what he records at the end of Jesus' question. The large crowd listened to him with delight. Why was there joy? Why was there joy in the crowd on that day? Because they knew this was a message of grace. They knew this was a new message, one they hadn't heard before. A message that would eventually put the self-righteous teachers of the law in their place. And Jesus had just used the Bible to describe where that place is. It would be his footstool. The footstool of his enemies. I don't want to be Jesus' footstool. I want to be his friend. I want to be with him. I want to love him and be loved by him. So church, I ask you a few questions today. Are you ready to stop trying so hard to make God love you? Is there anyone who's just tired and ready to stop trying so hard and accept that he sent his son to be the Lord of your life, to die for those sins you're so desperately trying to hide? Are, are you ready for that? Is that you? Are you ready to realize who Jesus is and what he most desires? He doesn't most desire you to be perfect. He most desires your heart. He wants your heart. Will you surrender to him? Will you throw up your hands and say, I'm not good enough? And just surrender your heart, soul, mind, and strength to him? 
Don't allow your spiritual pride to keep you from giving God your best. Don't. Don't allow that to happen. Give him what he came to save. Give him what he came to save. What did he come to save? He came to save all of you. And so that's what he wants. He wants all of you. And he wants you just the way you are. He doesn't want you to stay that way simply because he made you for so much more. But he wants you because he loves you. And he doesn't need you to be perfect because he's the only perfect one. So will you surrender to him today? Will you give him what he wants? Not a beautiful outward face. Will you give him all of you? Father, we thank you so much for the grace of Jesus. We thank you that he came to rescue us from our sin, from our self-righteousness, from our morality. He came to rescue us from that. And he came to bring us life and life eternal. We thank you, God, for sending your son to us. We ask now that you would receive our humble surrender to you, that your Holy Spirit would just call us by name and that we would surrender our hearts to you, Jesus. Please come and move as we give everything we have to you for you're worthy, you're worthy, Jesus, of so much more. We love you and it's in your name we pray. Amen.